Church welcomes you to this series by Jim Howard called Positioning Yourself for the Miraculous. This is the fifth message in that series. Before I even get on that stool, I say to you that I, I say I think it was tomorrow will be three weeks ago I had a birthday. Now for years when I was pastoring a church, every year toward the end of the year, the Lord gave me a message for the church and it always was prophetic and it rhymed. And since I quit pastoring the church, I'm not getting that. But I've been getting messages on my birthday for me, ministry-wise. And so I can declare to you this morning that I'm 81, but I'm not done. I can't quit now because there's more race to be run. And my assignment is still clear from the Father and the Son to teach grace and faith and teach how the victory is won. How do you like that? All right. Now, the first thing in your Bible, I brought, I was all getting ready to step into the technology age, and so I had what I wanted to put up here on a flash drive and found out all the people that know how to do that left hand. And I, I'm going to tell Pastor Scott not to announce when I'm coming the next time. There was a mass exodus leaving town. So he got me some old technology here. But the very first thing in your Bible says, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so I've been, for years, I've been doing this. I've drawn some little circles, and I've, if I trained your pastor right, you've probably seen circles similar to these sometime or other. But I'm just going to draw a circle up here, and this, in the beginning, God created the, the earth, the natural realm. I'll just put an N in there for natural. And at the same time, he created, now when was this? This was in the beginning, whenever that was. Uh, I, I, this preceded Adam and Eve. First, he's got to make them a place to live. He's going to build them a house before he puts them here. So he created the, he- the earth, but he also created the heavens or a supernatural. I'll just put an S for supernatural. Or a, we could call that a spiritual realm, a natural realm and a spiritual realm. This is a realm we're familiar with right here. I, sometimes here lately, I could have done it if I'd known. I'd, I have, I, I've used a globe to bring that and let the globe be the natural and all this other space in here is spiritual realm. Because I tell you, there's a whole lot more activity going on here in the spiritual realm than is in this natural realm. And if you don't understand how this works, you can't get the other to work. And, but there was a rebellion in that spirit realm at one point in time, and I'm not going to give him half of it, but a proportion of that. Of that. This is the kingdom of God up here. I'm just going to add kingdom of God. And it's supposed to be influencing earth now, too, by the way, since we're here, strongly. And then this other fellow down here, he's not a king, but we can just call it the kingdom of the devil, but he's not really a king. He's just pretending to be. Into this, from the natural realm into the spirit realm, there's a door here to let the spirit realm get involved in your life. And Jesus, according to Revelation 3.20, stands on the outside and knocks on that door. And if you will open the door, he says, and, and invite me in, I will come in and sup with you and so forth. And, and we can let him come and get involved in our life. There's a door down here, too. But he don't knock. <laughs> He's just checking the door to make see if you happen to leave it unlocked. You don't even have to open it. You don't even have to invite, say, come in. He's, he's, he's watching the doors. The Bible says it tells us he's going around like a roaring lion seeking whose house he can break into, whose life he can invade. So I, I just wanted to have that little bit of background. And, uh, and now I get up here and sit myself down. Uh, and there, Yeah, there's my water. I'm good. And I love, the, I love the pulpit. This this is my first time using this stool. I have to get padded, got a back on it and everything. Uh, last week last week I sat on Maudie's stool, and it was really anointed. Pastor knows Maudie. Wanda and I were at the beach a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we went over to Calabash and ate lunch. And then they've got all, everywhere you look, on every corner there's a thrift shop. And she said, we would like to go in that thrift shop. And I said, yes, we would. And so... And at, I will say down there, they're pretty good. They get, somebody's taught them people marketing because most of them have a men's department, which means there's a place in the store in the corner somewhere where chairs are, are circled around where you can just sit down and talk to the other men while you're waiting. But I went over and found the book section, and then there was one shelf down there that said spiritual. And I was looking in there, and I found this book. And this book is, it was brand new. No, but I don't think anybody even read it. It looked like, certainly I hadn't read it because if I'd read it, it had been underlined and highlighted and everything. But I saw the title of the book on this little edge right here that said The Will of God by Mr. Leslie, Pastor Leslie D. White, uh, no, Weatherhead, Leslie D. Weatherhead. He pastored for a number of years the city temple in London, including pastoring during all the years of World War II. This book on the will of God was published in 1944, and it's based on four sermons he preached about the will of God in a church where they were experiencing 
German planes flying over and dropping bombs at night. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit of revelation he had about the will of God. I'm just telling you before I even read it. One, one thing that will get me riled up at people is to hear them blaming God for what the devil did or even blaming God for what they did to their self. <laughs> so this book written in 1944, he says, uh, I'm just going to read you a little bit of this. <clears throat> he says, the phrase, the will of God is used so loosely and the consequences of that looseness to our peace of mind is so serious that I want to spend some time in thinking through with you the whole subject. There is nothing about which we ought to think more clearly, and yet I sometimes think there is nothing about which men and women are more confused. Let me illustrate the confusion. I have a good friend whose dearly loved wife recently died. When she was dead, he said, well, I must, I, I must ex- just accept it. It is the will of God. But he is, he is himself a doctor, and for weeks he had been fighting for her life. He had called in the best specialists in London. He had used all the devices of modern science, all the inventive apparatuses <clears throat> by which the energies of nature can be used to fight disease. Was he all that time fighting against the will of God? If she had recovered, would he not have called her recovery the will of God? Yet surely we cannot have it both ways. The woman's recovery and the woman's death cannot equally be the will of God in the sense of being his intention. Uh, He said, let me illustrate the confusion again. He said, my, he's quoting here what somebody said to him, quote, my boy was killed 10 days ago in one of the, is one, in one of the raids on Berlin, said a woman, but I'm trying to bow to the unscrutable will of God. But he says, but was that the will of God? I should have said it, I should have said it was the will of the enemy, the will of Hitler, or if you like, or of the evil forces we're fighting. Are they then the same thing? I skip over here a little bit, and he says, I was standing on the veranda of an Indian home darkened by, that was darkened by bereavement. My Indian friend had lost his little son. The light of his eyes, uh, who was the light of his eyes, he had lost him in a cholera epidemic. At the far end of the veranda, his little daughter, the only remaining child, slept in a cot covered over with a mosquito net. We paced up and down, and I tried in my clumsy way to comfort and console him, but he said, well, Padre, it is the will of God. That's all there is to it. It is the will of God. Little boy's died. Fortunately, I knew him well enough to be able to reply without being misunderstood, and I said something like this. Supposing someone crept up the steps into the veranda tonight while you're asleep, asleep and deliberately put a wad of cotton soaked in cholera germ culture over your little girl, over her, over her mouth. As she lay in that cot there on the veranda, what would you think about that? My God, he said, what would I think about that? Nobody would do such a terrible thing. If he attempted it and I caught him, I'd kill him. I'd kill him with as little compunction as I would a snake. And I'd throw him over the veranda. What do you mean by suggesting such a thing? But John, I said quietly, isn't that just what you have accused God of doing when you said it was his will? Call your little boy's death the result of mass ignorance. Call it mass folly. Call it mass sin, if you like. Call it bad drains or communal carelessness, but don't call it the will of God. Surely we cannot identify as the will of God something for which a man would be locked up in jail or put in a criminal lunatic asylum. And then he says, for those of you who want a text for this sermon, we'll find it in the 18th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel and the 14th verse, which says, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Any question about that? It says, it, it, Jesus said, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And he says, we see by these illustrations, which of course could be applied to other disasters besides death, how confused and loose our thinking is about the will of God. So I'm impressed that somebody was preaching that in 1944. Fine, I'll deposit that. Could you lay that over on the seat somewhere? Thank you, sir. That's my grandson-in-law there doing a fine job. Firefighter for the city of Charlotte. My good-looking, one of my four good-looking granddaughters, Laura. My good-looking wife, Wanda, sitting right there. And I'm glad to have all of them here with me today. I have also four good-looking grandsons. Thirteen good-looking great-grandchildren. We had a family picture over Thanksgiving. I think about all of us were there. And I put that thing on Facebook. That was a year or two ago. I said, and I said, this is all of us and not an ugly one in the bunch. <laughs> so I think all of us think that about our young offspring. Uh, we, we've talked about, let's see, the plans, uh, the position. I'm talking about in this series. The perception, that's how we see ourselves primarily. And the profession of our hope. And today, 
we're going to talk about the perpetrator. Now, there was a big bad deal that took place in Florida just not many days back, and it involved victims, and it involved survivors, and it involved a perpetrator. On the TV crime shows, they just probably call him the perp, all right? And I'll remi- let me remind you of this scripture. You can put it up if you want to, but I'll only be on it in a minute. And if you don't know this scripture, you had not been in this church more than a time or two. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, and I'll, if we went back and read a little verses leading up to this, well, let me give you what the verse said. He said, the thief, that's the perpetrator, that's the enemy. The thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, but I am come that you might have, help me, church, that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Amen. He, he identified who's behind killing, stealing, and destroying, and he identified who's behind us having abundant life. And that's some of the simplest theology you could ever find anywhere. But it's amazing how, just like that book I just read to you out of, how so many people, they know that's in their Bible. They'll quote it, but they don't believe it a bit when trouble comes. I've heard it said that when in the churches, when, when something good happens, luck gets the credit. And when something bad happens, God gets the blame. But John 10.10 10 makes that pretty clear. And then let's do look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. And I'm in the NIV here, and whatever's on the screen, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll be fine with that. And uh, uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse, I'm going to back up to 6. I don't, I don't want to mess you up with the scriptures and just leave it like you got it if you want to. But it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. I know scriptures talk about, I think in other translations, even this one, when we humble ourselves, God does what? Exalts us. If we try to exalt ourselves, God will humble us. Billy Graham was an humble man, but he was exalted more. We can see this week how he was exalted. God did not send something to try to keep him from being exalted. God wanted him exalted. You know why? Ministers need to be, I'll use this word properly, we're not talking about glorified or anything, but they need to have a good, well-known reputation that they know something and preach something. Because if not, nobody wants to hear them. If you don't receive the prophet, you don't receive the prophet's reward. So ministers need to be not not worshipped like some want to be, but they need to have a good name that's well known as much as possible to the area where they need to go minister. So God gives you shows you something that needs to be revealed to the church. He needs you to be able to go deliver it. So Peter says, "Under yourselves there, under yourselves there, for the mighty God, He will lift you up. He'll promote you in due time." He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled, be alert, because your enemy, the devil. King James, I know, uses the word adversary. Your adversary or your enemy, who's that he says is your enemy? Help me here. Y'all need to answer some questions. Who does he say that your enemy is? The, the devil. Prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone he can devour. Looking for somebody that's going to make access into their life for him. And you don't have to get out and sin, by the way, to do that. He said, he said, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Everybody's going through that. But what do we do? We resist him. We have an adversary of the devil, our enemy, going around seeking what he can do. Now, <clears throat> over in John 10, 10, I started to say it before I, I read it, and uh, Oh, that's a good scripture up there. It says, no signal, no signal, no signal, no signal. Okay, what you got up here? <laughs> Never mind, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> uh, in John chapter 10, leading up to that, we, we, we always say, well, who's the enemy? Who's the, the, the enemy's going around? And we say the devil, and we're right because he's behind it. But then as you read that scripture, he's really talking about the false prophet or the false teachers. He's talking about people that's trying to preach stuff and teach stuff that leads you off the track instead of onto the track. And... Uh, Perpetrator, perpetrator definition, I, I, when I was hunting P words, this one popped in there, and I was so proud, and I looked it up, make sure I could use it. It says, one who carries out a harmful, illegal, or immoral act. That's the perpetrator, and that's your enemy. Now, let's look at Luke's gospel, chapter 13. Luke, chapter 13, and I'm going to start at verse 10 after I get me a little sip of this water here. Luke, chapter 13, and verse 10. It says, on the Sabbath... Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit. That's a bad spirit that crippled her. She had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Now, 
Other translations say she had a spirit of infirmity. The NIV kind of left some of the words out there. Had a spirit of infirmity, but this makes I like this too. It makes it plain. She had been crippled by a by a spirit, not by a disease. She might have had the manifestations of a disease, but this was a devil doing this to her. She had been crippled by it for eighteen years. She was bent over, could not straighten up at all. Now that spirit of infirmity, by the way. Uh, some people think that means a spirit, well, a spirit that you just get sick about everything. She had a specific problem. She couldn't straighten herself up. And so then we say, oh, well, she had osteoporosis or whatever. Uh, but that word, that word infirmity in the original text, the word is in there in the Greek, and the word is asthenia, and it is a medical diagnosis that's still used today, and it simply means you can look it up. The, the, everything but the A part, S-T-H-E-N-I-A or whatever it is, means strength. And put an A in front of a Greek word, it negates it. And so it means she just had no, it means she had no strength. She was just so weak that she couldn't stand up straight. And been that way for 18 years. And she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and he said to her, Woman, you're set free from your infirmity or asthenia. You're set free from this problem you've had for 18 years. And then he put his hands on her. And immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now, for 18 years, she didn't have no strength to straighten up. As soon as Jesus said, woman, you're, you're loose from this, and laid his hands on her, immediately she straightened up and praised God. And indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work to work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath day. Let's not be coming in here and having all this healing stuff in the church on the Sabbath day. <laughs> Wait till the Monday and go to the doctor. All right. And I don't know if y'all have ever been around, but some, there are some churches that get nervous when the power of God gets to moving. And the Lord answered the kipper him and said, you hypocrite. Doesn't each of you on Sabbath untie your donkey from the stall and lead it to give it to water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, she's under the cut, she's in covenant with God. Shouldn't she, whom Satan hath kept bound for 18 long years, set free on the Sabbath, be set free on the Sabbath day from what he has done for her? And so I read that to let you see one thing. It was a spirit. It tells us it was a it was a, a demon spirit that had her in this condition. And Jesus fully agreed with that and confirmed it for us when he said, Satan has kept you bound for 18 years. Now, that's that perpetrator. That's that guy down there in the bottom part of that outer circle. That, that doesn't mean that woman was a bad sinner or anything like that. It means but somehow or another, he had gotten the whole part of her life and was controlling that. Uh, remind you of this scripture. Don't put it up. First, but First Timothy 6 and 12 says, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. And the fact that there is a fight to be fought indicates the presence of an enemy. The reason I'm teaching this, I know y'all are, you're going to agree with what I say, but there's so much of the Christian world that has no concept at all that the devil can do anything in their life. And they really don't have much concept that God can do much in their life. <laughs> so, and then... In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, I'm just going to remind you of this. You know it, I think. Some folks noticed in, out in the wheat field that there were tares coming up in the wheat and said somebody has sowed tares among the wheat. And Jesus said, an enemy has done this. Now, was the enemy the devil? Well, no, but probably somebody inspired for him because any sorry rascal that would go out and sow weeds in your garden <laughs> is not listening to God, I'll tell you that. And Jesus said right away, an enemy has done that. I'm just all, so far we're just established the fact that there is an enemy and Jesus believed there was an enemy and Jesus believed there were devils. Or we can use the word demon if we want to, although that word's not in the Bible, but it's always refers to them as devils. And he believed that and he dealt with them regularly. And then I'm going to go to Mark chapter 4 and we're going to turn over there. You have to back up just a little bit. By the way, there's a set of, there's some MP, those are MP3s, by the way, have, I think all those have four messages on them. And by the way, the one on, in case I didn't tell you, the one that I didn't have to bring in here, there's hope for the church. If you want to hear that, or several of those others there, you can go to my website. Get ready because this is complicated if you want to find my website, jimhoward.org. <laughs> and you can go there and it'll say, uh, click on uh, audio messages and you can pull up a whole bunch of them. Or you can click on something that's new on their video message, and I think I've got one on there so far. <laughs> but I've got some old from back in 1998, several that Robert's figuring out how to get on there. 
So uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, and this is where Jesus talks about a number of good things, one being the sower sows the word. But we're just going to look at a portion of that, and I'm going to assume you're kind of familiar with it. And you know, Jesus came and gave him a parable, and he said, uh, he, he said to him, uh, he gave him a farming illustration. He said, uh, he taught him, it says, he taught him many things in verse 2. He taught him many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a farmer went out to sow. And I'm just going to summarize this because you know what he tells about. A farmer went out to sow some seed. Some of it fell on, alongside the road by the path. And the birds just came and ate it up right away. Some of it fell in, in rocky ground. And it, had, uh, it, it sprang up at first, but it had no depth of earth. And so it just dried up and fell over. And, uh, and some fell among the the thorns and the briars, and it, it came up, but it got choked out by all the stuff that's growing there around it. And then some fell on good ground. And then I'm going to take us down to, uh, the, he had told them those four things. And then Jesus said, I'm going to go back to verse 1. You don't have to look. I just want to say this to you. Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat. I want you to realize there is a tremendous crowd there hearing this. He told them the, the parable. And then it says, Jesus said to him, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's all he's told him so far. And when he was alone, the twelve and others around him asked him about the parable. And he told them, and he gave them an explanation. So it was only the twelve and a few others that hung around that said, Pastor, that was a good thing you told, but I don't understand it. I want to hear more. It may have been, it doesn't tell us here real plain, but it may have been that he, he ended up the Sunday morning service and said, now I'm going to have part two tonight. <laughs> and a few of them came back, and most of them didn't. I mean, after all, Carolina and Duke were playing. Okay, who could go to church with that going on? But when, notice verse 10, when he was alone, the 12 and a few others and the others around him asked him about the parable, and he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, who's that? That's the ones that already left. Everything is said in parables. So that they be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And other, other gospel says that they might uh, repent and be healed. Word sozo. Uh, he said to those of you that waited and to get the explanation to this, the secret of the kingdom of God is being revealed to you. But to those others, uh, it was just a parable to them. So the ones that just heard the, heard the parable and went home, and you know, some folks can sit in the sanctuary and hear the parable without ever, and then they tune out, they tune their spiritual ears into the Mexican restaurant before time, and they miss the, they miss the, the meat of the message, right? Not any of y'all. But Jesus said to them in verse 13 then, so before I get there, those that just heard it, and did not hear the illustration, they went home, and some of the family said, what did that preacher we've been hearing about, I heard you heard him preach, yeah, what, what did he, how was it? Oh, it was good message. Well, what was it about? Well, it was something about a farmer sowed some seed, and there was rocks in the ground. And they said, well, what did that mean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but it was good. <laughs> and we had some good songs, Okay. But Jesus said in verse 10, then said Jesus to them, don't you understand this parable? He, he told the parable. He hadn't told me. He said, you ought to understand what I'm talking about. He said, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any parable? So over there, the sower sows the word. I'm pointing to those MP3s over there. It, understanding this parable right here about the sower sowing the word is the key to understanding the rest of the parables. It's the parable that reveals to you how the kingdom of God works concerning seed being sown and what the conditions are it is being sown in and so forth. And listen, when, when seed is sown, you're going to produce, how is this worded? What you sow is what you reap. So when you're sowing, when you, when you're sowing potatoes, what you expect to reap, you're supposed to get back more potatoes than you sowed. You sow corn, you're supposed to get back more corn than you sowed. Uh, you sow money, I'll tell you, you do a little experiment. Because people talk about, I'm sowing $50. Uh, it's when, when the weather gets a little warmer, and it's going to be good to do this, go out and make your little row in the garden, put three $20 bills in there, cover them up, pat it down, and wait and see what happens. We don't sow money. We give money. And then I sow my words and say, I have given, and it shall be given to me. Good measure. I say, I just sowed my crop right there. 
I wasn't really so, it's okay to use that terminology because if, you th- if your thinking's right. But what is being Jesus talking in this parable about being sown is the word. And I want you to know that is the last crop the devil wants to come up. <laughs> because he knows that the word of God is life to those that find it. He knows that the word of God is the sword of the spirit that will defeat him. And so when the word is going forth with revelation, it, the devil, is, that's his number one priority. I wrote myself a note on down here. It's not far down here, just a little ways. I can go ahead and tell you that the devil's number one priority is to get you out of the word and get the word out of you. And he will do whatever, however he can, distract you. I tell you what, there are empty seats in this room right here this morning that represent people. I'll, 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 I believe that God is trying to talk to that they're supposed to be over here hearing the word and they may be at home not doing anything or they may be in the wrong church somewhere that's having a good choir and some good worship and a good youth program they think that means they take the kids to the bowling alley and don't teach them anything (laughs) and God is saying to them I need you to get over to this place called Hope Church and and you have empty seats because of that I know that by my own self when I uh, left where I'd been 20 years and I, I start we started to work and and uh, and it's a struggle because people come and they say it's a small crowd and they they don't listen to God. And I've had people tell me people that I've had people tell me numerous times since then. I, we stayed there for seven years and and uh, y'all can do better than that. My I, I knew that I needed to leave. I was having health issues at that time and my wife died during that period and all that other stuff. So, but uh, the work went on. But at any rate, I've had people say to me. You know what? The Lord is talking to me about coming over and helping you, but I never did come. <laughs> and it was people that have been a great value to us, you know. And uh, you, you need you need core people like I see right here. You need core people so that when the people out of the world come in here, we can help them. But if your core people won't listen to God and stay with you, and there's no point in him sending the the, <laughs> the others. And that was just a little extra there you got without being charged for it. But verse 13, Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer is sowing the word. You got to understand that. What's being sown here is the word of God. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes. Who? Satan comes. As soon as they hear the word, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others are like seed sown on rocky places. They hear the word. And all at once they receive it with joy. Praise God, Pastor, that was a good sermon. That was a wonderful message. Hallelujah. And then before they can get to the restaurant, they forgot what it was. (laughs) But since they have no root, since they have no root, they last only a short time. When persecution or affliction comes, what's next? It might be on the screen up there. I don't know. When persecution or affliction comes... Because of the word or for the word's sake. Why did the persecution affliction come? To get the word out of you. Say, oh, you, I paid my tithes and look at here. All this trouble happened. This stuff don't work. Yeah, this stuff works. You have to work it. <laughs> uh, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. That's one's over here in the parable. Jesus talked about those sown on shallow, shallow ground, you know, rocky and and they didn't have any depth of earth. And as soon as the sun got hot, I'm going to tell you something. Shallow Christians can't take the heat. Shallow Christians can't take the heat. I, th- I think they might know. I don't even know if I, I deal with it a little bit. And I don't, I'm not promoting those things. I just want people to get the word. That's all the only reason I can got those. But something I've talked about. In fact, <clears throat> I am in the process of writing my first book. I've been saying I was going to do this for years. And I went down with we the beach last time. I, I knocked out part of it. And I've known for... 30-something years that my first book was going to be, if you don't get offended, you'll get blessed. Because that's such a big deal. Because people are just so touchy about everything. But you've got to be able to shake some stuff off if you're going to make it in the kingdom of God. Because the devil will send you some help. I've got a little thing. I should have pulled this up make sure I get it right. But it says, uh, my job is to love everybody and treat them right. Everybody else's job is to pull my chain. (laughs) But so... He said, but since they have no root, others are like seeds sown on rocky places. Verse 16, they hear the word and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, and by the way, they'll probably blame that on God. Since still others are like seeds sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the worries of this life, 
the deceitfulness of riches, the wealth and the, uh, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word. In other words, we got too much other stuff going on in our life. Now we need we can have some other stuff going on in our life, but we can let it overwhelm the word of God in our life. It makes it unfruitful. And thank goodness there is the number twenty that others are like seeds sown on good ground. They hear the word, they accept it, they produce a crop. Some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. So. What I want us to get out of that really, and I, but I need to do all that, I think, just to hammer it home and to help us explain to other people about this thing, that when the Word gets sown, in fact, this is going to lead up to a little story I'm going to tell you about why I'm here now and why I hadn't been here for a while and why I ended it four weeks when I probably should have had some more. But at any rate, we see that, that the devil comes to try to stop the Word of God. Now, let's look in Genesis chapter 1. We started out over there, but I'm going to go look at a few verses. And... Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> and I know, you know, it's getting kind of late, but it's late when I started. <laughs> we started late, and I thought, well, we'll compensate for that. I'll just go late to make up for it. Uh, but I, I, won't dra- I won't wear you out to try not to. <laughs> but uh, I used to sometimes have a good excuse if I was late for work. I said, well, I'll make up for it by going home early. But I never was late much. Genesis 1, 26, 27, God said, let us make a man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over the creatures that move along the ground. God made a man and gave him in his own image and after his likeness. Our mining Pastor Scott's and their family's f- former pastor for many years, Pastor Lester Robbins, he had somebody ask him one time, said, what does God look like? He said, he looked like me. <laughs> He said, how can you say that? He said, he made me in his image. Well, he wasn't being, he wasn't even trying to be funny, really. He he wasn't being boastful. He just knew who he was, right? Uh, John Osteen had had a number of fine children, one of them named Joel. John Osteen was about five foot, I believe five foot three or something like that. And he said, somebody asked him, how tall do you think Adam was? He said, five three. (laughs) Well, you know, we can have our, we can have our view. But God said, let us make a man in our image after our likeness and let them rule, have dominion, rule, authority over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over the creatures, and they move along the earth. Then, you know, we looked in Genesis, very first thing, we got these circles up here. That outside circle, I didn't remember to tell you what that is, I don't think. That out there is an alternate reality. Isn't that what that is? Stuff that comes from there is an alternate reality. It has more effect on our lives than what's happening here in this natural world. What, what you let happen in, your, in the spiritual side of your life is way more important than anything Congress does today. And, and so thank God. And verse 27 says to us, so, so God created man in his own. He, he had a discussion. Father, Son, Holy Spirit said, let us. And so they created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. And look at here, verse 28 says, God blessed them. Very first thing God did for this man was to bless him, put a blessing on him. Blessing is not just when you get the good parking place. Blessing is not just when you go to Bojangles and the line is short, although I count that as a blessing. That's a function of the blessing. But the blessing is something that God has imparted to us. <laughs> and the very first thing he did for his man was to bless him. And then he said to him, be fruitful. You see, if we're walking into blessing, we ought to be producing something. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every living creature that moves. And then God said, I give you, and so forth. And so, and then over in chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, it tells us about two trees. And I'll just say to you that, let me just summarize it for you because we'll move on. He, there's, who knows, hundreds or thousands of trees out here in the Garden of Eden. God said you can eat off of any of them except in the middle there's two, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil means knowing, having knowledge about everything, good and bad. There's some things you don't need to know <laughs> or at least focus on. And he said that one called the knowledge of good and evil, you leave that alone. That's, that's my tree. Everything he made was good, he said. It said, even with that tree, it says, and everything God made was good. So it wasn't a bad tree. It just wasn't man's tree to eat off of. And so they know what the, there's only one rule. <laughs> Don't eat off of that tree. All the rest of the trees, help yourself. By now the woman showed up, of course. And then we get over to chapter 3. The end of chapter 2 is when Adam and Eve got married. God brought him a mate, and he said, and it says in, uh, it says for this, he, he the man said when he saw her, 
he, he, God put him to sleep, took out a rib, it says. I've helped some men with this lately. People didn't understand. They said, well, you know, I've counted my ribs. I thought there should be one less on one side than on the other. But I got the same number on both sides. And, and I said, well, you know, I've done some extra research here. And when man was first made, Adam was first made, there was a rib right across the middle here that held his belly in. And that's the one God took out. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm sticking to that as a theory. <laughs> All right. So Adam and Eve, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. They'll become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were, felt no shame. And then the very next verse, they get married. Two of them coming in agreement. Two of people entering into covenant. And the devil says, oh, no. Now they can put a thousand to flight or 10,000. 10,000. And so he comes crawling in. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals and the Lord had made, and he said to the woman. So this snake crawls up here and starts talking to Eve. And we know, so some people, I saw somebody lately on a Facebook thing, somebody was talking about this and, and said the devil, you know, and they say, well, it, the Bible, my Bible doesn't say the devil, it just says it was a snake. Well, you can go back and read in Revelation chapter 2, and you can also read in Revelation chapter 20, when Jesus said, that old serpent, the devil or Satan, all right, so we know the devil's, the devil needed a physical body, and so he, he might have just found him a snake and said, made him an offer, you know, said, would you like to be able to talk? <laughs> I had a lot of things you can just say that might not be exactly so, but he said to the woman, snake comes in, devil talking, a devil, did God really say? And he thinks about the tree. What's he trying to do? Get them to doubt the word of God. Get them to, that, that's the only way he can deal with them. Get them to doubt the word of God. And he is successful. And God told Adam something. And the devil told Adam something. Adam and Eve. And they chose to believe the devil. And because of that, we've got the only two. There's four chapters in the Bible where perfection on this earth are described. That's Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. They were in the Garden of Eden. Everything was wonderful. Everything was provided for. And then from there all the way, then Adam surrendered his authority to the devil. And all the way from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 20, the devil is running wild on this earth, even though starting 2,000 years ago, the church is supposed to be keeping him restrained and under our foot, but we're not doing a good enough job of it. And then in chapter at the end of chapter 20 and then going into chapter 1, chapter 21, the devil gets thrown into the pit. And chapter 21 and 22, a new heaven and a new earth come down. And now we've got perfection on the earth again. Everything between them bookmarks, the devil is the problem. And now, so I remind you of Luke chapter 4. You know this. I'm going to try to cut some things down here a little bit. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just been filled, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River. He's 30 years old. And he was the son of God all that time, but he went down to the Jordan River. John the Baptist baptized him in water. And at that time, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended as a dove and, rest, and, and, and came into Jesus. And there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, the devil had been trying to figure out for all these years who that seed was. And when he heard that, he heard that, he said, Aha. And so the very next thing we find, Jesus, that's when Jesus is anointed with the Holy Ghost and power, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. That's when he became the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one. And the devil knows I'm in trouble unless I can do with him what I did with the last Holy Ghost-filled man that was on this earth whose name was Adam. And I got to go talk to this young man that just received the anointing and the power, and he is the living word, and I've got to get him off track here. But we know that then Jesus was led not by the devil, but he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, tested, tried of the devil. A lot of people wonder, well, why in the world did the Holy Spirit lead him in there to be tempted by the devil? I learned this from my, my good friend, minister friend by the name of Randall Greer, that God didn't send Jesus into the wilderness for the devil to teach Jesus something. He sent him in there for Jesus to teach the devil something. And so everything that, the first thing that devil said, and you know this, he said to him, did, are you, see, he'd come to Adam and Eve, and he said, did God really say? Trying to get him to doubt. Now, Jesus has just got the news himself and got it confirmed, even though he had an inkling of this, I think that you are the beloved son of God and you I'm well pleased and you're the anointed one. He, he's, gotten, he's, got, he's heard from heaven too. And so he goes into the wilderness and the first thing the devil says to him is, if you be the son of God, 
if you're really saved, if you're really healed, if, you re- if the word of God is really true, if God really makes provision for you, if he really blesses you because you're a giver. <laughs> All these old iffy questions. Well, you know what you got to do? Just look at that. Such a good example for us to know about. All you got to do is look right back at the devil and tell him what the Bible really says. Jesus said, it is written. And the devil even quoted him a scripture. The devil even misquoted him a scripture. Quoted it almost right. It would be about as right as you can find it in the, in the Jehovah's Witness Bible. It'd be that close. And I'm not, not, they were perfectly wonderful people, but they just don't, they didn't do the right thing with Jesus. They made him something he's not. Didn't make him what he is. And they're trying to get to heaven based on their works. I tell you, going by grace is so much easier. I don't know why anybody would want to just go out of their way to try to go by works. Got the whole Middle East, a whole bunch of people over there. Think that they got to give their life to please God. And we found out that God gave his life to please us. Amen. So Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus just gets back at him with the word and says, get behind me, Satan. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Let me tell you this story too. So I can let you go home after a while. It's about something called Paul's thorn in the flesh. It is about the most mistaught thing in the Bible other than maybe Job's boils. Thinking about what the devil does, Job chapter 2 verse 7 says, And Satan, everybody say Satan, And Satan covered Job with boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Now let's have a little test and check for understanding. Who was it that gave Job the boils? It was Satan. How do we know? The Bible says so. (laughs) The Bible says, listen to all you church people out there, hey, the Bible says it was Satan that gets right there in the book. Satan covered Job with bulls on the top of his head that sold his feet. Then Job's three friends from, from the men's group came to try to straighten him out. And they spend chapter after chapter after chapter in that book explaining to Job why God did this. to. They all had different theories, but the all common thing was why God did this to you. Did God do it to him? Them guys was wasting their time. And so then Job starts kind of buying into it, and he starts talking about that way himself. And then, thank goodness, there was a young man by the name of, his name means God is salvation. <laughs> anyway, the young man showed up, about verse chapter 32, I think. I know that name, but it didn't come to me. And he says, listen, I've been sitting here listening to you, you, you know, the senior citizens talking, and I've just had respect for y'all because you're older than me and you've been around longer and all. He said, but there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty gives us understanding. He said, I, I've been here, sitting here listening to this junk y'all talking, and I can't take it anymore. And then he goes on to tell him the tr- them the truth, and hardly anybody ever preaches about Job and mentions that guy. But he tells them, he says in there, God does not afflict. And he said, over and over again, he's given them the truth. And then Job has to get in a conversation with God, and then God gets Job straightened out, and then Job repents and and prays for his friends, his three friends, who the Bible says God said, your friends were lying about me. <laughs> and I hear sermon after sermon where people are quoting Bill Dad, Zophar, and the other guy, and saying, but it's in the Bible. I know it's in the Bible, but God said they were lying. <laughs> Charles Caps, I just put it on Facebook this week because it came up as a memory, said, the Bible is so simple that you have to hire somebody to help you misunderstand it. And that's what those guys were doing. They were probably elders. They were hired to help him misunderstand. But see, right there it tells us, no, this has been going on. Job is, supposedly Job is the oldest book in time of writing in the Bible. Written, he was a contemporary with Abraham's time, and they believe Job's book was written prior to even Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it tells us that Job, what is that first book about? It was about a man that was so blessed by God that he was the richest man in the East. And then he had a period of persecution and affliction coming for the word's sake. And he kind of got into that, but it only, all his troubles, it was bad troubles, but it only lasted a brief period of time. Some people think several months. It lasted long enough that these same three friends were standing there talking to him. And, and then he repented and he prayed for his ignorant friends, for God to forgive them, Lord, forgive them, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. And then he wound up twice as blessed, which means twice as rich as he was. He was the richest man already, and now he's twice as rich, got more cattle, more sheep, and all that stuff. And then people will say, I'm just like poor old Job. When they tell me that, I say, praise God, I hope I turn out like poor old Job. Twice as, twice as blessed as I started. I've already had the trouble. <laughs> right? So we got Paul here. Paul, he t- you know, he tells this like he's trying. He's, he, he's, Paul is humble. Paul is Billy Graham. 
He's humble. But he's writing to the church at Corinth that he really helped got started. And he, he was their pastor for two years. And he came and ministered to them often. And then some big shot preachers from Jerusalem came to town and said, oh, don't listen to this guy Paul preaching this grace stuff and all that because we've got a new revelation. And Paul's not really even an apostle. So Paul in 2 Corinthians is having to kind of defend himself. And so he doesn't even want to say this is me I'm talking about, but they all know it is. Was taken up into the third heaven and given an, who knows the answer, an abundance of revelation. He, was take, he said, I was taken up into the third heaven. I was given an abundance of revelation. And he said, and so there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. Now, some people have decided they can figure out what that thorn in the flesh is. They decided it's this sickness and that sickness and the other sickness. Oh, it was his eyes. How do you know it was his eyes? Well, because he said, see what large letters I write. He was almost blind. He had to write real big. All right, I can take that and I can prove to you without a shadow of a doubt that John Hancock was almost blind. Didn't he sign the declaration real big? You know why he did that? He was the president of the Continental Congress. His signature is the one that mattered. His and the secretary. In fact, the original document, only him and the secretary signed it, sent it to England. Then they made some copies and had everybody sign it for the states. So anyway, people just think of all kinds of stuff. Paul said, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, which was a, a messenger of Satan. Tell your people they can talk. It's okay. A messenger of Satan. What was the thorn in the flesh? A mess. Say that real loud, everybody. A messenger. I like you believe it. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan. Who would now messenger? The Greek word is angelos, an angel or a messenger. This is a spirit that worked for Satan that came to visit Paul with a message. And who you reckon sent that spirit? That devilish spirit to Paul, was it God or was it the devil? It was the devil. There was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. I'm quoting King James here now because I hadn't turned to the scripture, but whatever it says, to buffet or to harass me. And if you look up the word, that word for buffet in the original, it says it means to, to box about the ears. Just They're just smacking you and not really beating you up, but just harassing you. And maybe physically or otherwise, slap you around a little bit. It, it was given to me a messenger of Satan, lest I be, the NIV, I do not like how they translate this word. It's not a good translation. It says, lest I become conceited. But the King James, let's go back there. He said, unless I be exalted above measure. The devil, it was not God. It was the devil that sent one of his messengers to Paul after Paul got an abundance of revelation to keep Paul from getting exalted. And how many of her sermons have we heard that just had that absolutely backward? The devil did it because they knew Paul was going to get in pride and all that stuff. I mean, the God, I mean, God sent a messenger again. God gave him this sickness and this problem because he knew he was going to get... No, Paul was an humble man, and he was already exalted. Everybody all over Turkey and Greece and the, the known world just about knew who Paul was, just like they knew who Billy Graham was. The devil would have loved it if Billy Graham had lost his exalted and nobody wanted to hear him preach. They'd have loved it if they'd heard that. That happened about, about 50 years ago. First time I saw Billy Graham preach, by the way, was in 19, spring of 1952 in Kannapolis, North Carolina, in the auditorium of the J.W. Buchanan High School. And that week, Billy Graham could come to a high school auditorium. <laughs> and I was, I was touched that time. I heard him that time. So... I think I did enough with, with that for us to see what that's about. I, now, I want to give you just a brief testimony, and we're going to be through. June of last year, I was down at the beach. And I told you how I, was woke, I, woke, I woke up about 5 o'clock in the morning, and God began to give me a bunch of stuff. And it had to do with, and he even told me what the title of this was, and it had to do with positioning for the miraculous. And I, I got some information, and I wrote two pages full of notes. And I was scheduled to teach on a Wednesday night up in Landis at a church, and and uh, But it was only going to be 30 minutes, and I was going to be on the miracles of Jesus. And I knew this is way more than 30 minutes worth. And I, I, just, I wrote me a note up in the corner of those notes, and I said, this needs to be, I need an opportunity for this. Uh, somebody wins a Bible study that I can have somewhere or something or whatever. And lo and behold, to my surprise, a couple of days later, I got a text from a pastor I knew, the name was Scott Gray, they said, he said, the Lord said he wanted me to come teach a series of messages. And I have never heard of a pastor inviting another pastor to come teach more than one Sunday. And so I thought, surely this must be God. 
And so I came here and I started on that. And, you know, I had, we, we, we talked about the plans, the position, the perception, and the profession. And I, on that fourth week, and I really didn't know what was next, but I thought there was going to be more. That fourth week, I said to the pastor, I said, when, I think when today's over, I'm, I'm through for now. Uh, and uh, so at the same, but during the process of, of me doing that, there was a thorn in the flesh while I was doing that series here. And you know that last week I sat on the stool, but that was because my back was hurting so bad I could not stand to stand up. And one day I had been to the beach again, and, and we carried stuff up the stairs and down the stairs. And so we were trying to think, well, wonder what in the world caused this back pain. It's probably carrying that stuff up and down those stairs. And, but at the same time, my blood pressure, which had been just great, wonderful for a long time, all of a sudden it got high. And when I say high, I'm talking about sometimes I saw it like 240 over 100 and something. And I'd been to the doctor, and they'd increased the medicine, and my blood pressure still wouldn't get right. It was still way too high. And I, and I had had, now during that period of time, I could think of natural stuff. During that period of time, I had preached eight weeks out of ten. And I told some of my friends, I said, you know, when you're a pastor, you're okay if you do pretty good every week. But when, you've got to understand the friends I was talking to would understand this. I hope you all do. I said, but when you're a world-famous evangelist, you've got to hit a home run every week. <laughs> But you see, I just sit on a stool and relax. That's okay. Uh, but, and I had had in nine days' time, I had five people die that were real close to it. One of them I did the funeral, a couple of funerals I helped. And so I had had some stressful things going on. And so I was relating to that and I was relating to the. But then I finished up here on the 22nd of October. I knew because I'd looked it up and I got it written right here. Uh, but really, what made me know I needed to quit was how my health was. And I and I had prayed, and I had people pray, and I'd cast, and I told told the devil what I thought. I thought. Then two days after I was here on Tuesday morning, it was, we were having our pastor's prayer meeting. That I've been meeting with some guys for a long time. Pastor Donald Moore, Reverend Donald Moore, he hadn't pastored in years. He's he's an evangelist I know, and he got a prophetic gift. He's a seer. He sees things. He, there's nothing dramatic about him at all. He is about as wound up as Pastor Scott as far as getting dramatic. I mean, really, you, he, you, he just calmly walks around, and the Lord shows him things, and he'll just say to people, uh, can I pray for you, whatever. He lives here not somewhere in this area not too far away. I, I really meant to call him and see if he's preaching anywhere and tell him to come over here today, but I forgot to do it. But at any rate, so that was on the 24th on Tuesday morning, and I was, I was doing our pastor's meeting that week. We alternate who does it, I mean, that month. And he said to me, he said, uh, Brother Jim, I want to pray for you before we go. And so then before we dismissed and the rest of them were still there, he said, as I was sitting there and you were sharing, he said, I saw, he's a seer, that's what prophets do. He said, I saw a swarm, like a swarm of little spirits, almost like fat bumblebees just buzzing around your head. And he said, there was one big one over in the corner trying to talk in your ear. Now, I hope by this point in this message, I've convinced y'all that devils do operate, spirits. And so he came down there and laid his hands on me and prayed for me and and then I received that, what he had said, that this is, a, this is a devil problem I'm dealing with. And so, and I tried to deal with that. And so it was about 12 days later or whatever it would amount to. It was on Sunday, a week and a half after that. He was going to be at Word of Faith Worship Center morning and evening. And I got up that morning, going to go up there to hear him. And when I got out of the bed, went in the bathroom, and I, I was thinking about going up there to hear him. And my mind went back to, to that occasion where he had seen that demonic activity over my head. You know, the devil needs to get in your head. Did y'all know that? <laughs> he can't really get in your body, I don't think, until he gets in your head. And I'm going to tell you something. When your blood pressure is high, and even if it was normal, when you strap that cuff on yourself and you're worried about it being high, in other words, you let it get in your head, I promise you it's going to be high. But that morning, all I'd done going in there and getting ready to brush my teeth, and I was thinking about that, and I heard the Lord say to me, You've been talking about carrying stuff up the stairs at the beach. What else happened to you at the beach? I said, and he gave me the answer. I said, abundance of revelation. And I said, I just looked to my left because I guess that's where it was. I said, aha, devil, I've got you. I know what this is all about. Right then, the next time I checked my blood pressure, it was normal and has been since. Right after that, back pain started going away. It was an attack. That's why I knew I had to come back up here and give you this message. Now, I did a lot of background. I could have just given you that right there and it had been about said it. But we got to get convinced first that the devil is involved in what's going on with us. I don't care if you are a preacher. I don't care if you've been a tongue-talking Christian for 56 years or whatever it amounts to. The devil gets in your head. 
he can get in your life. And it's easy for him to do it. It's not, it's not a, he had gotten into Paul's head. <laughs> I'm sure he got in Billy Graham's head from time to time. Because he, that's where he operates, with persecution and affliction to get you thinking about stuff and, and all that. But what his goal is, is to stop the word. He came against Adam and Eve because he saw two people coming together and they had a promise from God. And he says, I've got to try to get this out of him. I've got to, I got to come against the word of God, get the word of God out of him. He did, tried it with Jesus in the garden. He, he tried it with, with Job. It lasted for a while. He tried it with Paul, and it lasted for a little while. And, and you know, Paul prayed that prayer and said, Lord, uh, <laughs> said he prayed three times. You know what he prayed? He said, here's the translation of it. He said, God, would you please make the devil quit picking on me? <laughs> and what did the Lord say? My grace is sufficient to take care of the devil, Paul. I see people twist that around and say, well, God said, you'll just have to put up with this because you got grace. No grace is a power word. Grace overcomes. Grace don't put up with. Grace defeats. <laughs> Not me, but the de- enemy. So he came against me for the word's sake. Well, I tell you what, I just decided I'm going to go up there and preach that word anyway. I remind you of 1 Peter 5 and 8. We started with that almost, but it says, Your adversary, the devil. Be on guard for your adversary, the devil, goeth around like a roaring lion. No, that's not a different one. Your adversary, the devil, comes against you. He said, Whom resist steadfast in the faith. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves to God, therefore. Resist the devil. Everybody say this. Resist. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Don't ever get those two mixed up because too many people want to resist God and submit to the devil. I mean, something as simple as God speak to them this morning. And they've been around. They've been born again enough. They're not supposed to know the Lord's voice. He says, aren't you over at, the Hope, at Hope Church today? And they say, I don't want to go today. What did they just do? Resisted God. <laughs> See, it's not so much the biggie stuff. And then we know in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and relax, I'm not going to preach a whole series on the armor of God right now. But what did he say to do? It says, stand against the wiles of the devil. He said, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Our problem's not people, but it's principalities. These are all demonic spirits. They're principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness and heavenly places coming against us. And it says, stand against them. Stand against the wiles of the devil. And after you've done all to stand, what are you supposed to do? Just keep on standing. Take a stand. Take a stand. Put on, put on the belt of truth. You've got to have the truth. That means you know the truth and also you tell the truth. <laughs> put on the breastplate of righteousness. That means you have been made righteous by faith and you live righteous because you live what you are. And then put on the helmet of salvation and get the, you know, all the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith with which you shall quench all the fire darts of the wicked. You heard this, some of you, but I got to tell you, remind you of this. that shield. When Paul told that, that old shield they used was made out of leather, thick leather. When it says quench, quench means put the fire out, doesn't it? They were shooting arrows with fire on them. Well, if you shoot an arrow with fire on it into a dry leather shield, it'll burn it up. So what, before they went into battle, they took their shield out and soaked it in water. Got it saturated. Now, it makes it heavy, but it also makes it quench. So in order for me to keep my shield of faith to where it'll quench the fire darts of the wicked, I have to, it'll dry out on me. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so what I have to do is I have to regularly take my faith and soak it in the water of the word. And now I'm, so you see, the Bible gives us all instructions about how to fight this battle, how to deal with that enemy. But what we have to do is we have to do it. We just can't lay down and take it. Sometimes we got to be like old Popeye, you know. He said, when, when Bluto, I see, I see some. A little bit older audience, I see older audience, I see Who knows who Bluto was? That's Popeye's enemy, old fat guy. And Bluto would just, he would buffet Paul, boxing him around the ears, irritating him, messing with him. And then old Popeye, after a while, would say, I done stood it till I can't stand it no more. And then he would get out his can of spinach and eat that spinach, and his muscles would pop out, <laughs> pop out. <laughs> and Bluto has had it. So I tell you what, don't put up with the devil too long. Just go ahead and say, I done stood it till I can't stand it no more. That Satan, in the name of Jesus, get yourself behind me because the Word of God says, the Word of God says, the Word of God says, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Jim Howard called Positioning Yourself for the Miraculous. For 
other messages in this series, please visit www.hopechurchnc.org. That's www.hopechurchnc.org.